Hi, you're listening to Hoople Heads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Esther Rosenfield. I'm here with Soren Howe, and this week for our final episode of Hoople Heads, we have a really, really incredible guest. It's Emily Vanderwerf. You can say hi. Hello. <laughs> uh, we're it's so happy me. to have you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, we're talking about the movie this week. Uh, yeah, it's 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 really uh, putting the series to bed. And I was, I mean, we can get into it. I was really taken with the movie in a, in a big way. Before we start, do we want to just uh, give a little bit of an introduction to who Emily is? <laughs> We probably should do that. You can, you can introduce yourself however you want, Emily. Yeah, I'm the, uh, I'm the critic at large at Vox.com. Um, and uh, when I was at the AV Club, 10 years ago, in 2009, I reviewed every episode of Deadwood mm-hmm. in pieces that I am assured by several people are very good. I have never <laughs> went back and reread them. They seem, they like, they're full of the embarrassing tics I had when I was a writer in her 20s. Um, but, uh, they, I am assured by people that they enjoy them and think they're a good coverage of the series. So, uh, that is just kind of, that's kind of the short bio of me. And at the end, I'm just going to plug a bunch of shit. So, oh yeah, fantastic. (laughs) That's our, that's our favorite bit. I will say I have, I did read a couple of those during our, uh, our trip through this series and I can confirm that they are quite good, though I do understand being hesitant to go back and read anything you wrote more. I mean, 10 years ago. I can't read things I wrote three years ago. It's too much. So (laughs) I completely understand. I'm also like, at the time, I thought I was getting at this profound sadness we all felt. And then I learned it was just gender dysphoria. So, (laughs) um, yeah. Yeah. But like, like people tapped, people tapped into that and like, you know, so, uh, so I'm so grateful that people love those reviews. I can't, I can't read them because they remind me of a version of myself that was like, ah, you know, it's going to be fine. I'm just sad all the time. (laughs) That's, uh, we actually have had at least one guest on this podcast who got into the show, I think through in part through your reviews. So Mm. (laughs) It's all very, uh, very circular, but it's it's very cool to have you on the podcast. So, so, so thank you. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, yeah, cool. so the, this is the movie. This is the the Deadwood movie. We've been building to this for like what two years now, um, because I we took so. a very long hiatus, so we've extended that. Um, but I think we again. started the show like around the time the movie was announced, unless I'm misremembering. Yeah, that sounds. It might have been right. because the movie was announced. Yeah, I think it must have been around 2016. Yeah, it was it was late 2016, maybe early 2017. But yeah, we were. Um, I think it was announced maybe sometime during our record during our like uh, our show. Um, it might have been that, but there had been. It was kind of like starting to come to a boil around the time we started. I think that was mm. one of the reasons we started is that we knew that this was coming. Um, and I, having never seen the mo- the show at all before, definitely wanted to to see it before before this came out. And then, um, we, and that almost happened. <laughs> well, we had this horrible situation where then the movie came out. And we were still trying to make it <laughs> get through the series, which was very difficult uh, to to avoid just jumping ahead. For me and Esther was, <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed you made it. This, uh, you made it all the way to the end. But anyway, we did. Uh, and I only just watched it today. I have held off for like a week because I've been busy with life. Um, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it was a it was a, a roller coaster. So so what Emily, what was it like for you to to watch this movie after 
it must have been quite a an experience to go back to the show or to this to this world. Do you mind if I tell a really boring and self uh, <laughs> self uh, self indulgent story? Yeah, sure. Go please, for it. please do. Best kind. <laughs> so, I started watching Deadwood. I started writing about Deadwood. One of the first pieces I ever published of TV criticism was a piece about the women of Deadwood. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> it was a piece about the women of Deadwood at Matt Solar Sites' old blog, The House Next Door. He did a theme week called Dead Week in the summer of 2006 to greet the show's third and final season. And I, he asked me to pitch for that, and I, I pitched this thing about the women of Deadwood because I really liked how the show had a lot of strong lady characters, and mm. you know, there's no reason for that. Um, but I, I pitched that, and he said, "Yeah, do it." I wrote it. He made some changes to it. Like I learned a lot about editing from that experience, and uh, it's still on the internet to this day. You'll have, you'll have to go searching for it. So. That was my start with Deadwood. That was my start with really thinking about it as one of the great shows of all time as opposed to just a show I liked, which I already knew I liked it. Um, But his writing about it really clarified how I thought about the show. So um, then I – it's 2019, so it's 13 years after that, and the movie's coming up, and I get the screener of the movie, and I'm like, I'm not going to watch this because there's an HBO screening coming up. And it was hosted by Matt Zoller Sites. And I got to see this movie on the big screen at the Arclight Hollywood at the screening for Emmy voters that my wife got me into because she's the TV awards editor at IndieWire. So she has all the Emmy connects. <laughs> so I get to sit there and watch this with my, my very good friend and mentor, Matt, you know, sitting right in front of me. Mm. Um, and we like, and the three of us got to go out, my wife and Matt and I got to go out for dinner afterwards and just kind of talk about everything. Um, and the other thing about it was this was uh, early May, maybe mid-May 2019. This is just a couple weeks before uh, I'm going to come out publicly as a trans woman uh, in the pages of Vox.com. So like there's this weird, there's this weird finality to the movie And then I figured out, because of the way the calendar worked, there was a really good chance that I could publish a piece on Deadwood and have that be the last piece I published under my old male byline. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my editor was gracious enough, because she's like so sick of my shenanigans, but (laughs) (laughs) she was gracious enough to make that happen. And like the last thing I published under my old name was a review of the Deadwood movie. And there was just so much, there was such a beautiful appropriateness to that. And we'll talk a lot about how this movie is, is a cyclical end to this series in a lot of really beautiful ways. And honestly, to the TV writing career of David Milch, though, I hope he, he gives us one or two more things before, before he goes. Mm. Um, but to have it be that cyclical with my own life really felt, powerful to me in a way that like in a way that felt vaguely spiritual in the way the show often is where you get this sense of some larger animating force behind these people you know i don't want to call god but is definitely some sort of some sort of providence that is that it has its hand sort of hovering over everyone and i felt that i almost felt that in my own life with the way that this all played out and the way that it got to be such an encapsulation of my tv writing career to that point and now I just, you know, I just, I'm just terrible now. But uh, before <laughs> then, it was great. 
that's really incredible and and especially thinking about you know like you say this movie is so much about both the way that things end but also the way that things continue on in a way that we don't see at that point yeah yeah um yeah and then i watched it again uh when it aired i watched it live i had been watching the deadwood marathon i just had the tv on and, and kept it on um and you know, that was a couple of nights before my essay was publishing. So I was busy getting everything ready for that to happen. And it was just such wonderful companionship. And I haven't watched it since then. I, I probably should have revisited it for this podcast, but I, I just didn't have the time. But so much of it is burned into my memory. It's so good. And mm-hmm. like, I make a general rule of not putting um, made for TV movies on my year end best of TV list, because I feel like that's such a specific skill um, and a lot of the time our TV, our movie critic is like, cause they'll have theatrical premieres or whatever. Our movie critic will want to have them on her list. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always happy to seed them, but like, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do with this <laughs> one. Cause it's, it's special and it's wonderful. And like, I, I hate to just like have it in a sidebar. That's like, this was good too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I will say this is number one on my films of the year list currently. Um, I don't do a TV list, but I, I would definitely be struggling to figure that out as well because it's amazing but it, it is very much um i guess it is structurally interesting because it does feel uh cinematic in a lot of ways but it yeah. also does feel like this could be almost excerpts from a season four a lot of it yeah it's this weird thing that is both a holy standalone thing that i think anybody even people who've never seen the show could appreciate that takes on this extra richness when you think about it as like a cut down version of what season four might have been. Now, everything we know about Milch's plans for season four suggests that this is nothing like that. But mm-hmm. um, but we could talk about that in a bit. Um, but yeah, like I, I again, I don't know where to put this as opposed to movies versus TV. I'm o- I'm old enough where I have this like strict delineating line between the two, <laughs> but. It's one of the best things I've seen this year. I really loved it. And seeing it in that environment at the Arclight with the cast there, and then they got up at the end and we all sort of stood up and applauded for them. Like seeing it in that environment was also really, really special. Well. I would have I would have loved to have seen this. <laughs> I mean, it's, be- it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It is. Yeah. And, I, and I do wish I had seen it on a bigger screen. Um but uh, it's funny. So it's uh, Emily. It's a it's interesting story that you told because, um, and I'm, I'm gonna connect this. I'm gonna connect this to something a bit a bit broader, not just us and me. <laughs> but first, I will connect it to us and me. Um, so the first bit is just that um, you know this. One of the things about this podcast that's come to define what Esther and I do on this podcast, not being not just Deadwood, right? Not just Hoopleheads, but what we've done on these television, these long, uh, long form television podcasts is something that funny enough comes in a way from Matt Zoller sites. So like, it's this, <laughs> it's this funny cyclical thing where like, you know, he wrote this incredible piece, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, which was this, um, which was him begging critics to actually write about filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a great, it's a great, important and like it's a it's just simple thing but it's something that is like essential and completely lost on a lot of folks um and i think it's what you know we had a game of thrones podcast and folks who who would who had come on as guests and also who just would you know comment and things said the thing that's different about your pod your game of thrones podcast is you're not like talking about it as as fans of the the franchise or the story or whatever but you also 
engaged with the actual cinema uh, aspects of it and 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 how you know camera work works in the show and things like that. Now, of course, as we were watching that, I was like, you know, there's a really good show we could be watching instead of this, uh, <laughs> and that's kind of how we came onto Deadwood. That was probably the most animating factor there, but that is partially why we came to Deadwood. And then, of course, in addition to that. Uh, uh, Matt Zeller cites is like the you know this the Deadwood super fan and um and I had connections with RogerEbert.com writing for them and doing other stuff so like I don't know it's it's funny how that's all kind of connected but it's even uh, more I think on point that you bring up this um you know you 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 even I didn't wasn't expecting it but you brought up this this sort of spiritual side of things and I was thinking about there's a a piece by Randall uh, Colburn at at the AV Club which you may have read about uh the spirituality of, of Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that piece, uh, there are some really incredible quotes, but actually <laughs> um, uh, there's, there's a quote from you in that piece about oh uh, how cl- um, collective survival requires human beings to learn to function interdependently. Uh, and in that way, communities become single organisms, which is like a prophetic quote, considering in this film we have doc cochran literally describe humans in the same way with cells being these like individual living organisms within the greater person when he uh when he's talking to al um uh, about like mortality and when he's sort of facing that which is uh, obviously a, a big theme in the in the movie um but it's you know that quote comes from way before <laughs> the movie ever came out and it's this just this connect interconnected sort of angle of things and what this what this uh, article argues is that this show is you know punishes people for separating you know that you know you see when when Jane falls off the wagon it's when she sort of separates from the community and that characters are better when they're together and part of the part of a greater whole and that that's part of the motivating sort of animus of the show uh so it's just it's so funny to hear you say all that because i think all of these connections that's part of the spirituality of the show that's part of the the way david milch sort of talked about religion which wasn't per se in any particular theology but a sort of general interconnectedness uh that he continued to talk about uh uh later on and there's there's some good quotes in that article which i'll, I'll definitely put into the to the um to the write-up of this podcast but i think that that's all part of what the show is about um, it's it's about the chaos versus the order, about technology versus you know the the, the frontier and all these things. But also one of the core uh, facets is is how people organize themselves, how communities form and and uh, and grow out of that. And and in its own way, Deadwood has created those communities. And it's just it's a it's it's really cool. I really like that that uh, reflection. Yeah, it's interesting because this. I mean, the movie is uh, so much about the way that these people have to. I mean, we think I think about the scene. Well, two scenes. The first is is when everyone is uh, working together to keep Hurst from buying Charlie's land, um, and then of course the ending when every yeah, the much the more violent version of that when everyone gangs up on Hurst in the thoroughfare and beats him up. Um, this is very much about you know coming off of a very bleak ending to season three. It's about people in this town banding together in a way that can actually deliver like positive results mm-hmm. and not just like horrific compromises um yeah i, I really I, I think that's that's really cool and that's definitely like a major major presence in this film it's also i mean you know not to go off on like a a, a, a tangent um but 
it, for some reason, it has come up not infrequently on our podcast about this particular show that uh, both Esther and I went to the same synagogue growing up and have a similar religious background in that regard. But for me personally, and this isn't any reflection on anybody else, but this is just my personal feeling is one of the ways that, you know, the, it, agnostic of any particular religion, um, one of the ways I, I identify with that sort of, you know, um, with whatever you want to call sort of spirituality is is in in the interconnectedness between people and things and i think that's where whatever spirituality there is if there is such an objective thing in the world exists in those connections and i think that this show despite it being you know it's not what you think of when you think of deadwood although it has those sort of you know overtly religious aspects um it you don't think about necessarily how other ways that this show sort of communicates those same those same themes and messages um, but, you know, all the way down to, like, you know, Richardson and all, all these, you know, characters who have their own little ways that they communicate with, you know, he's got his antlers thing and, and all that. And it's all just, it's all part of this this search um, that I think the show really invests in uh, over time. But, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I, you know, you asked you bring up this point that I think it's, it's, it's worth noting that this is a, um, uh, this sh- we talked about how grim the finale of, of Deadwood is, and it seems like it sat with David Milch for a long time as well, um, because it became the finale that wasn't intended, and so it was what people were left with. And this show, this this movie, has to reckon with that, um, and that's what a good chunk of the film is: is reckoning with with what happened um, thirteen years before. Uh, I've always suspected that Milch was more aware than he let on at the time that the season three finale might be it. Hmm. He had had all indications, and he said that in, in interviews, particularly for Alan Seppenwall's book, The Revolution Was Televised. There's a bit in there where he talks about how he kind of wrote that as if it was going to be the series finale. Um, he had, From all indications he had, there was going to be a fourth season, and he had plans for that. And it sounds like it almost would have been even darker than season three. Um, he always wanted to get the show to the point where the actual town of Deadwood, or the camp of Deadwood, burned down. And like that was right. going to be the end of the show, was this town burning down. And um, obviously we, we didn't see that. Um, this Deadwood movie is disconnected from the real Deadwood um, in a way that the series isn't. You know, the real Deadwood did burn down. Um, Al Swearingen, the real Al Swearingen, lived, uh, you know, 10-ish years past the movie, and the movie's end pretty strongly implies that he dies. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, so, like, this feels a little bit more like ending the TV show Deadwood instead of, like, continuing the historically uh, accurate, more or less... Uh, series Deadwood, and I think that's that's an interesting approach. As much as I love it, it is a little bit like David Milch writing um, writing a fiction about his own characters. I don't want to call it fan fiction because obviously he's the he's like the author <laughs> of the series, and I think you know that fan fiction has all these connotations that I don't think it deserves, but. But yeah, there is this sense of like he has taken a little bit of leave of the original reality of the show to say what he wants to say, both about the show and then in the last 45 minutes or so about life more generally. Like, I remember watching this at the Arclight and being like, this is kind of taking its time getting going. And like, I found a little bit of the plotting, if you will, somewhat forced, like like Trixie yelling at Hearst to me feels... I don't want to say unmotivated, but it feels like like it happens because 
Milch needs it to happen right at that moment, which is not the worst thing in the world. It's how a lot of TV works. And if you look at David Milch, it's how a lot of David Milch TV works. So I'm not too upset by that. But um, the last 45 minutes, they're just um, they're just about how life is lived for most people and how things just sort of happen and we have these moments in our lives that are important, these people in our lives that are important and they're there and then they're gone in a way that I don't think very much art gets at. Like certainly there are a handful of films, a handful of novels. Um, actually, let me take that back. The the thing that just reminds me of is the novel Middlemarch, um, which I'm going to pull up the closing lines of that book because I think they, they summarize so beautifully what Deadwood is going for. And this, this movie to me captures kind of the feel of that novel this 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 tiny town that's a microcosm of the human experience i somehow started this where i was gonna like talk about how i grew up in south dakota and have been to deadwood many times and i didn't even get there so we're just gonna save that for later while i look up the last lines of middle march <laughs> yeah um it, it is the, the uh stru- like i said earlier the structure of the film is is odd in a number of ways because it does sort of feel like um, an abridged season of television in certain ways, mm-hmm. the way that like um, the way that Charlie's whole storyline is initially introduced, the idea that he is for the first time today telling Seth that people have been coming to him from Hearst asking to buy his land. It's like, well, that's, you know, because this is a an abbreviated format, uh, everything kind of has to happen right now. In the show, we would have gotten, you know, several episodes where that was built out, and he would have probably told Seth much earlier, and that would have kind of, it would have been given well, more, more more space. Well, I actually, so so there are aspects of, and, and I do want to talk about things that, something I rarely do in Deadwood, talk about things that I didn't like as much. Um, I wouldn't say we're necessarily bad, but like like the general contrivance of bringing everybody back to the town. Some people have a reason to be there, um, but some people don't, right? Like Alma shows up because of the bank and the etc. with the you know the, the statehood and all that. Uh, Hearst, it makes sense to come back because of you know uh, his his new station and they're, they're you know there's there's some aspects that makes and he does have a lot of holdings there. Like it makes sense in some regard, but like Jane coming back at that exact same time. I mean, like, there's no real reason for that, but it's a, you know, so so there's a bit of contrivance there. Um, but I would say that, like, on Charlie and 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 um, and Seth's lack of communication there, it doesn't appear Charlie's functioning as deputy anymore. Um, and 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 moreover, we also get this very important bit later uh, in the film when when uh, Al says something along the lines of "Where have you been?" Uh, and Seth says "Just up the road," but there's this implication that. Um, and it's part of like the character development of these, you know, where they are, uh, that's, you know, he's cooled off and also isn't doing his usual, hasn't been doing what he was doing for three seasons, uh, in his sort of interface with, with Al. The implication is that what Hearst did sort of just set off the town. Some people left, some people, but it just sort of broke whatever the system was that was in place. Al continued running the gym, etc. but there is this sort of people have become distant. They have become less. And it actually, it's, it's that same thing we talked about in season three of, of Hearst galvanizing the rest of the town back together again. And that's exactly what happens in this, um, in this, uh, not just with them physically arriving in the town, but also coming together, uh, especially by the end of the, uh, the movie. Um, 
that I think we're, we're meant to believe that like Charlie doesn't talk to Seth every day like he used to. It's just not a thing that happens and hasn't happened maybe for many, many years. Um, I think that's a, an interesting point because, I, I mean, one of the most kind of blatant, uh, I don't know what to call it, but, you know, just just having watched this, uh, the season three finale so recently, Alma says to Sophia, like, we're not leaving the town. And there's an implication that's like, well, you know, th- does she mean it? But uh, as far as I'm remembering, they don't leave the town at the end of season three. Mm-hmm. But the implication of the film is that they left almost immediately after that. Yeah, the, have su- not been the suggestion is that they, they either sell or they leave. And they sell. Yeah. So she's so therefore they should be in town. Um, but you know, but I like the idea that you say that that event, the, the, the killing of Jen kind of fractured this, uh, this, uh, collective that the town had formed over the three seasons. And even though we don't see that, we do kind of see the result of that. Well, it's the killing, it's the killing of Jen and also the victory of her. So the fact that they, nobody gets yeah. their satisfaction. Um, I think it was actually Robin we- uh, Weigert who said in, uh, she, who plays Jane, um, she said uh, in describing the finale, I don't know if this was recent or an older interview, but she said something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, it's like the reverse of a Western, right? Like <laughs> the, good, the the bad guy rides off in the sunset. What, what, what is this? It's supposed to be the other way around. Um, and uh, and I think that that's how, that's how they, obviously this act, particular actor felt, but it's also how the people on the, on the show felt. Uh, or sorry, the characters felt, which is you know that's you know that's a dispiriting thing to watch the the embodiment of all that's wrong you feel with the world right off into the sunset, um, and I think it's uh yeah it's just sort of uh, soul crushing, uh, and it and it does you know there's a, a question I really want to there's a couple questions I really want to ask you guys about what you think about this movie versus the you know in terms of messaging and things like that like what does Hearst represent. Um, obviously in the show he represented a lot of things you know the, the sort of the uber capitalist the uh, you know uh, just all these like elements that we've that we've discussed with um, with regard to his position there but here you know he really represents something a bit different almost uh, you know he represents uh, the inevitability of modernity he even says this in, to some extent you know he's pivoted to technology from from gold um, the inevitability of order and of government coming to t- like it's just he's he's like this wave that just can't be stopped. But then he is to some extent. Obviously, it's not like they kill him or something at the end. But there is that catharsis that happens towards the end of the film. And how much does that sort of upend how the show was, uh, where the show sort of left us before? And is that a is that a good thing? Is that a bit like how how do you feel about that? So I, I do want to talk about that a bit, but just really quickly before that, in terms of the historicity historicity of the um the movie, I can't speak to what David Milch was thinking with um regard to the to the film and and what they had changed and updated and you know I like the little touches like you know there's a an oyster shack which like there would never be an oyster shack in the show because where would that have ever happened? But now it's so modern and so accessible that they can get things from wherever you can get oysters and get it all the way to, to, to Deadwood, you know, that's a, something that you can maybe do in 1889. Um, but I do like that. Uh, so Robin Weigert also said that at this point, the Jane she's bringing into the story, of course, this isn't mentioned, uh, you know, outright, um, is uh, a Jane who has been working with Buffalo Bill Co- Cody and all these other, like she has their own sort of history of Jane and what she's been up to for the past 13 years that isn't really communicated in the show all that much but I think that some of these characters did bring in or these actors did bring in at least some of their 
you know, connecting it a bit to the to the historical context of where they might have been at this point in time. I mean, certainly Hearst obviously was yeah. did 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 become a senator and was um, a fairly significant. Uh, and he does still have the his, historical armor of not being murdered in Deadwood because that's not a thing that happened. So there's little bits and pieces. Yeah, I'm just going to let Emily cut in here. Yeah. Different, but yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Emily. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, um, uh, I'm trying to track back what I was going to say. <laughs> Is this the middle, the middle March? No, no, no. I do think that, um, I do have that pulled up, but I do, I do want to say, I do think the historical accuracy of it, the idea that they all come back to town, I think it's motivated by statehood in a way that, that works for me. Um, granted, this is based on that I grew up in that state and was around for the hundredth for the centennial celebration in 1989. So like I have vivid memories of that and, and that whole thing, but um, they do sort of, they do really kind of get at the sense that um, this statehood celebration is a thing that all of these people have different feelings about, but it's drawn them back to this place. I do think that the plans for the original series really in, in the sense of like that fourth season kind of being about the fall of Deadwood in some ways, like that was sort of going to be about a handful of months to like a year and a half ish in these people's lives that really affected all of them and touched all of them. And then, you know, they kind of went their separate ways. So it feels like in a way, this is a sequel to a fourth season we never got to see while simultaneously feeling like a cut down fourth season. So that I think I think that's part of why the initial going is a little, not rough, but just like a little weird and like works a little hard to get you caught up um, and has these kind of flashback snippets. That's a good way to put it. No, I agree for sure. And uh, yeah, I think that, 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 you know, that falls away the longer the movie runs. Um, And uh, I, I am going to read this, this quote from this goddamn book um, (laughs) because I am that bitch. Um, (laughs) So this is the end of Middlemarch, which is a book about a small town in uh, England in the 1830s, I believe. It's written by George Eliot. It's one of my favorite novels ever written. It is essentially about the lives of normal people in the face of sweeping political change and sweeping social change. It's heroes named Dorothea, and she kind of grapples with her place within society, with whether she should get married, all of these things that are kind of classic uh, dilemmas of uh, English novel heroines of the era. So this final paragraph of the book, which spoils nothing, I promise you, uh, is talking about Dorothea and it says her. Okay. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Alexander broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Um, and that's what Deadwood's all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> wow, I think I really like that. Yeah, I think that that really that that touches on on this that essay about spirituality that I um, referenced earlier. Um, there's a there's a piece of it where the the author argues that there's a um a like one of the reasons that Al finds it so hard to deal with Reverend Smith isn't just because of you know connection to his brother and and just the general tragedy of it but also that Reverend Smith has found an, a purpose and has found his own way to to sort of exist in this in the world 
uh, and then to see that, to see the indignity of how his life sort of takes this horrible, uh, you know, uh, turn towards the end, um, is frustrating to him to see. Where it's like you, you know, you had it, you had the life. It was a, not the life that Al wanted per se, but a life. It was a purpose, a purpose-driven life in this, um, in this particular uh, environment, this very harsh environment. Um, and then through no fault of the reverends, it's all being sort of taken away and that that's really hard for him to see as well, which I think is such an interesting, interesting way to think about these characters. And I think that quote you read, you know, sort of gets a, a similar, some, some of those, those similar themes, which, you know, you know, what, what it, you know, what is the good life in a, in a, <laughs> in the, in a place that, that rewards, you know, cutthroatedness and, 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 um, and taking what you can and uh, seizing on claims and and uh, and also just treating other people not particularly well per se can can really reward you right that's that's Hearst's whole whole thing um, and it's just such a to within that sort of uh, that hurricane of, of of terribleness to find you know some some path forward. Uh, which is something that in some ways Seth did, especially after he sort of learned to calm down a bit, um, is just something that Al maybe never quite found. And I think that's part of what he finds difficult. I mean, it's such an incredible reflection on that finale that he has later in the, in the, in the film where he, he makes that comment about Jen's ghost that, you, you know, you're never going to get rid of her, right? She's, she's still here. Um, implying that he spent the last 13 years, if not trying to scrub out, because you note he doesn't scrub at all during this movie. Um, he, perhaps he's given up. He knows that there's no way to undo or sort of cover up or, or spot check, you know, this, 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 this decision he made, you know, 13 years before. And it's something he's still living with. So, I, yeah, I think it's, uh, there's, ugh, there's so many things going on in Deadwood. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to kind of seize on, um, uh, one of you was talking about um, Sora, and you just mentioned Al reflecting. And I do want to uh, not elide uh, the direction of this film by Daniel Minahan. We, I, I his episodes of the series, uh, raved about. I thought he was just, you know, I don't remember which episode it was in particular. It was a late season two episode. Uh, and if you go back and listen to that episode, I just lost my mind over over the way he directed it. Um, and I was so thrilled that he would direct the movie. And it's amazing. It is very much, it does not look like an episode of television. It does not even look like an episode of Deadwood, which was very well directed, even at its, you know, kind of plainest. Um, yeah, I think that's and, important. It really doesn't necessarily look like Deadwood, right? It is this, it does have a sort of more modern sheen on it, which is kind of an interesting stylistic choice. But yeah, anyway, go ahead. But there's this great uh, motif of um, of mirrors of people uh, looking into mirrors, reflected in mirrors, that uh, you just see it all through the film, and I think it it is it you know, it reflects on what these characters are doing, especially Al, um, who is it's worth mentioning also having trouble with his memory at this point in his life, um, so he is both haunted by what happened during the the events of the first three seasons, but it is also like it's failing him in a way, and and the the reflection is cloudy, and we see that very literally too he him in a in a very kind of filthy mirror at one point um it's just the way that minahan it is so much uh it is very un what we think about as westerns 
in a cool way. Like there is no, uh, there's not a lot of very, and there never have been on this show, the kind of sweeping wide shots of the plane and the grand horizon and these grand landscapes that, that, that Westerns are, are so often consumed with that we think about like John Ford movies, especially, um, Deadwood has always been very, uh, just because of the nature of the town and the nature of the sets, almost claustrophobic. Everyone is just jammed into these kind of tight spaces. Um, you know, everyone is kind of always within proximity of each other. There's always like Al can always see everything from his balcony is probably the best example. Um, and you see that kind of in this movie, he takes a step back and the camera is so often so far away from the characters to the extent that like the first time we see Samuel Fields, um, I mean, obviously, like, like most of the characters, he looks very different than he did mm. on the show. But because it's a wide shot, I wasn't sure it was him at first. Yeah, that's I just, exactly. I had it in my so, notes. Like, is that the camera's so far away like, yep. from him? <laughs> the camera's so far away from him. I was like, is that? I, I like, I couldn't. And of course, the next time you see him, it's it's a close up, and it's more obviously him. Um, but there, like, there's that great shot of Alma, uh, who's near the end, after she's left Seth at the wedding standing in this hallway and the camera there's just so much distance and you see that just all over this movie that there is this it's like the camera it's it's almost like the camera is is in this final deadwood film like stepping away from these characters it is it is it is moving away from them and i i i, I i'm really i don't know like i'm just really enamored with what with what daniel minahan did here like he, in in uh in a television film like this is this is better directed than so many other films i've seen in the theater this year i think that's that's all 100 percent true and there's the other aspect of this i think that makes it feel so different than the show uh, aside from like just a straight up i don't know if it's i don't know if the original show was shot digitally somebody might be able to correct me on that i can't imagine it was i don't think so no. but no, this time, i think definitely yeah. was at least oh, it, it looks like it, yeah. It looks like and it. And not to its detriment, I don't think. Not yeah, to its I detriment, it but I think, again, talking about this sort of glossy feel and the fact that it is catapulted into the future technologically, which was a big theme in the in the, in the the film as well, um, and has been a theme in the show in general. But if you remember the show, the show is so characterized by these flickering uh, fire, you know, oil lamp scenes, especially at night that just feel a very particular way. So aside from the graininess of the film, there's also just the lighting of the, of the show. Now it never looked bad. So when I say well lit, I mean, well lit, like you can see if you were living there, but not well lit for us, the viewer. Um, but like the show is much, or the, the movie's much better lit than the show was uh, because it just, and, and it's not, you know, I don't think the implication is necessarily that all the lighting has changed in Deadwood, although there is certainly that implication that there is this shift but it's also the way that, like, the film doesn't have that cave-like, you know, shadowy yeah. feel that the the show did. It feels like a step in out of this archaic analog time into a more digital sort of era. Yeah, it really like you talking about that. Like, like night on the original series had this almost foreboding feel to it. It had this almost um, almost colonial times feel in terms of like uh, uh, moving, uh, moving. If you left behind the torchlight of the, the, the camp, you might suddenly be set upon by a bear mm -hmm. or something. Um, and night here. Almost prehistoric, like almost like, yeah. you know, hunter gatherer kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that digital is, I don't want to say good at, but digital handles very differently than film is capturing darks and capturing night images. And 
what I like about this is that they don't really try to make it, they don't really try to fake the look of film mm-hmm. um, at night because it works for the story to have the look of night be subtly different because there's more lighting now. There's more, we're moving toward the era of easy access to electricity, mm-hmm. toward the era we're in now where night has a very different feel from, I mean, if you've ever been out and seen a campfire in the middle of nowhere, like you know how different that feels from walking down a city street at night, even a dangerous city street at night where there's street lamps above you. Like, that's a very different sense than I'm sitting in the middle of nowhere, and if I leave the campfire, there's going to be a bear mm-hmm. right there because they're everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I took I took so many screen caps of this movie, and I'm just looking at a couple right now. There's this shot, I'm, I think, about halfway through of Seth standing outside his office, and it's the middle of the night, and there's just street lamps everywhere. And it is not bright, but, like, you can see the light reflected off of the wet ground of the thoroughfare, and that's making it even brighter. And it just feels, yeah, there is none of that, like, sense that, like, if you if he takes two steps off into the distance, he'll just be engulfed by darkness. You can see all the way down the thoroughfare, and you can see lights, you know, 50 feet away from him. Um, and it is, yeah, I think you're right on the money, Emily. It's this completely different uh, sensation that is done... That also speaks to just thematically what this movie is about in terms of uh, technological advancement, that, that, that uh, the notion that just the inclusion of all these lights has completely changed the character of the town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like I think of the uh, fi- one of the final images is Sophia and oh, God, I don't remember the name of the new um, the new sex worker at the, at the Caroline, Caroline is Caroline and Sophia. In the snow, as the the electric or the as the light is sort of drifting down on them, and that is the kind of image that becomes a lot more common in the 20th century, which this film is 11 years before. Uh, but like that, really, you couldn't have seen in the original days of Deadwood. So it's like it's like capturing this little moment in time when these images that we're vaguely familiar with from you know photography from the film era are becoming like more common, like. Um, weirdly that shot made me think of the movie Meet Me in St. Louis. I guess not that weirdly, like they're, they're, they're pretty similar and those shots are structured pretty similarly, but, but yeah. And like, that's another story about a group of people dealing with mass societal and technological change. And like, it's now I'm wondering what kind of like movies people are going to make about us, like dealing with Twitter. <laughs> oh God. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, you know what? We, yeah. we pointed out, I think, in the first season that there's a uh, there's is it is it um, Jack McCall who's uh, harassing uh, um, Bill as they're building the the uh, the hardware store? Yeah, and he sounds yep. exactly like a Twitter troll. Yeah, <laughs> exactly you brought that up. Like yeah, a Twitter troll. Um, so in some ways, this you know it's. It, you know, some things are, are different, you know, uh, technically speaking, but it's the, the same concepts just, you know, recurring. But you, I mean, just to, just as a quick point on the on the electricity and things like that, you know, they even emphasize this point where, um, you know, there's a shot of Hearst laying on his back, because of course, um, in one of the many like dolly shots in the, actually, this might be like a, I don't remember. I don't remember how this shot goes exactly. I think it might be a dolly shot. Um, but anyway, uh, they, like sort of uh, the camera focuses on the the, the uh, phonograph, and it's an Edison, right? And you can see in big letters it says Edison on it, um, just to like really emphasize like that's there or we're in now. Just for folks who aren't, you know, don't know like when these things sort of came, but like you're hitting the era of film, right? You're hitting the yeah. era of 
like what we would consider modern times and i think that's that's really cool and there's um just on this going going back to hearst and what hearst represents because i think it, it ties into this um there's this uh, article for the new republic by rachel syme um where uh there's this idea that like that she presents where it's like th- the way as order comes to the town there's this the shift in who can survive that change and who can't and that Al's ailments uh, and I might be extrapolating a bit from the thesis but that seems to be sort of the direction of it which is that there's this idea that Al's ailment and his his sickliness is a necessary uh, consequence of how the, the town's changing that his style his way of approaching society and how he interacts with Deadwood and the people of Deadwood is incompatible with the new world that Hearst has built and Hearst, people like Hearst. Uh, and that that sort of shift has happened and that Al just can't function in that. Um, uh, Seth can sort of, you know, adapt to that because he has that, he sort of walks between these two worlds. But Al just doesn't really fit that that sort of idea, which I think is kind of a, a, a cool concept um, that if Hearst represents that kind of order and it's dominant, you know, where does Al even fit into that kind of... He doesn't, really. I mean, you can't be a state and have somebody operating the way Al operated. It just doesn't... It doesn't work, you know? I, there's this great line Al has where he's talk, kind of scoffing at the idea of installing a telephone in the gem. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the va- the value of being unreachable. Yes. And yeah, the, exactly. his whole... Exactly. His whole, like, everything about him is completely at odds with the idea of... Uh, a society where everyone can contact anyone at any time hmm. um and, and you know we, we we saw this even in i believe it was season two or two maybe three when he sees the tele the telegram polls going up and he's even like uh he's even angry at that the idea that you could send a message and it could be intercepted or someone could send a message secretly without anyone knowing about it um so yeah it, i think Al's, uh, his death, such as it is, although I do want to talk about the final shot later, um, it is very much, he, he is sort of consumed by this, uh, he, 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 he doesn't have a place in the world the way that it's going. Exactly. The way that he, the way that he lives his life and the way that he runs what he runs doesn't, it can't, he can't function anymore. Um, and that takes this very literal toll on him, like his body and his mind can't function anymore. Um, it's really, it's really, it's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. He's like a he's like a boomer who's just gotten Facebook. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, but like his skills are atrophying. Like, when was the last time he murdered anyone? We don't really know. You know, one of the well, things yeah. I one of the things I was sort of interested in uh, around Deadwood discourse when the movie came out was I got a lot of people. I saw a lot of people talking about this. I got a few emails about this. Because I wrote a very effusive piece in praise of the show a few years ago, which, of course, being a site on the internet, we uh, re-upped, by which I mean republished, and um, I got some some kind of pushback to my claim that the show was great, and a lot of it was people who were concerned about Al becoming sort of a lovable. A lovable's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Like he becomes, mm. he's a TV character, and here's. Here's one of the central problems with TV, and also one of the one of the things that makes TV great, but also makes it one of the things that makes it terrible at depicting certain things, which is TV normalizes everything. Um, if you think of the show The Handmaid's Tale, 
right now we've spent three seasons in that world, it has become normalized to us in a way it shouldn't be. So the show has to keep increasing the shocking things that happen to make you be like, wait, this is wrong. Like, movies are really great at, at like, not normalizing stuff because it shows you something and says, like, um, like in um, Cloud Atlas, when it turns out they're eating people, it's like, this is wrong. And in a TV show, you would be like, oh, yeah, of course we eat people. That's what we do. Um, so TV shows normalize everything. But that also means that they're really good at showing you every side of a human being in a way that movies movies are fine at, but movies kind of don't work as well at doing that. And like, I think that's what happened with Al is like, by the time you get to the end of that original series, you've seen every side of him. So I got a lot of emails from people, not a lot, but I saw a lot on Twitter and then I got a few emails about people who were like, well, Al is an abuser and he's a murderer and he's a terrible person. And like, why are we supposed to feel like, you know, we're connected to him. Like, why do you praise the aspect of the show where he goes from a murderous bastard to somebody who is at least somewhat interested in the modern project of building democracy and, and liberal society and all of these things that sort of come with the 20th century? And like, at first I was like, oh, my God, you're you're too sensitive. And like, I had that sort of that knee jerk reaction that a lot of people have to this sort of criticism. And then I started to think about it and I was like. That's kind of the point of the show. Kind of the point of the show is that, like, Al has a time, Al has a place, and it situates you in that time and place and makes you understand why he functions the way he does. But he's not going to last much longer past that time and place. The fact that we can look at him and say, oh, my God, what a disgusting TV character, character to build a TV show around. As much as I disagree with that, it is a credit to the show's strength because it depicts the way that we moved past that time and place and built a more equitable society in many ways. I, I completely agree with you. And I think Al, like it's hard, right? Because this is so much, this is so much of just the conversation around TV and movies, frankly. Um, you know, we're, we're in the midst of the Joker discourse and it's the exact same thing. He's this terrible. He's horrible. He's a monster. I can't believe you're making this and you know, completely different, obviously context, but it's the same argument. It's, it's this idea that, in depicting uh, a person who does bad things as not as something more nuanced than just a bad person, that that's irresponsible or that's, you know, or that's like dangerous. Um, and I think that what, what, like you say, one of the things that's so great about Deadwood is that I don't think it ever excuses anything that Al does. It just says this is who he is and this is, you know, and we're telling a story about him and you don't have to think he's a good person and because he's very clearly not, but he is capable of more than just kind of very banal evil. Uh, and yeah, and I, I think, I mean, you don't need me to, to say that Al Swearingen is a tremendously written character. <laughs> yeah, I, I just... um. I struggle a bit with this discourse because I'm just like, you know, I'm just old enough to have remembered the era when it was like a movie can be about anything or a TV show can be about anything. And it's just like how the story is told. But I don't know. I look at like how much people thought to use a super obvious example, how much people believed Donald Trump was a smart businessman because he played one on TV. And like, I do worry about that element of like what people take from movies and TV shows that artists can't account for at the same time, like artists can't account for it. So they shouldn't worry about it. But like it does kind of swallow itself. One of the reasons I think Deadwood works in that regard is that, yeah, it never excuses Al. 
it reminds you of how terrible what he does is, but it also suggests that like actions can have consequences and one of those consequences can be forgiveness. And there's something beautiful about that that makes human society work. I think Al is an anti-hero, but the show never makes him the center in the way that like Tony Soprano was or uh, that Walter White was. And like, I think, I think that's a reason that for me, Al's anti-heroics are very different than some of the other characters who I also love, but who now in this era of like unchecked white male, like, uh, like avarice, I'm looking at a little differently. Yeah, I think certainly. Yeah, I think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, uh, so so it's, it's funny. We, so on the last episode where we discussed the the finale, we talked about this a lot. We talked about Al and, um, Al's, uh, about what the sh- the final episode of the show is doing, partially, um, that this is a show that Al is definitely the villain of season one in many ways, but over time becomes almost the protagonist of the show as new characters like Wolcott and Hearst come into the picture. Um, and then that's all through season three, and then season three sort of pulls the rug out again and goes like, let's not forget who Al is, right? Let's not forget. And that's his final act is this truly, you know, hideous moment. Now, it's not a moment that's even shown to us. It's sort of, um, you know, it's behind closed doors. Um, so it's, it maybe is meant to be a bit different in that way. But I, I asked, actually, I asked, uh, you know, um, Esther and, and our guest at the time, just, you know, what is, you know, is this, how are we, how are we meant to feel about this? And, you know, one of the things that we, that we talked about was that the show doesn't ask us to judge these characters. You know, it's not a show that's like, this is a, this, you know, that not to repeat ourselves, but like, it's, this isn't like a, some of the other shows that we've, we've watched uh, like game of Thrones, uh, which, you know, are, are, are revel in our moral judgment of the characters. Like you thought this character was good, but actually good characters can't live in this world. And actually this character you thought was good has done a bad thing. What do you think now? Like Deadwood, it doesn't operate in that space in any way, shape or form. It's actually very different than I think it set the stage for some subsequent shows that were, you know, had a little bit of that, like uh, breaking bad, but I think it's, it's its own thing in not asking us to do that. Um, which doesn't, which certainly doesn't excuse it. Um, but it just sort of paints the world as it is. And, and just going back to this New Republic article, because I think there's this really inst- interesting observation there, that if Deadwood is a story about America, which I absolutely think it is, it's something we've talked about a lot in this show, that, um, you know, the, the author says she avoided watching the show for a long time because, like, you know, she was like, I don't need to see another show about blustering, you know, men and toxic masculinity and how it makes everybody else's life miserable. You know, I don't need to see that kind of show. She actually eventually watched the show and said, "Actually, you know, I'm so glad I did because it's, it's, it's so good and depicts these things so well. But also, it's true to what America's founding story is. If this is a story of America's genesis, then this is, you know, the correct, um, the the correct way to portray it to not shy away from these these angles. That and and just to quote it, you know, she says, "America is violence and misogyny and crushing solitude. It is also resourcefulness, resilience, and metal." And all of this is part of the country's DNA, and Deadwood was willing to stare it directly in the face. And that is, I think, a huge aspect of what makes Deadwood so good is that it doesn't it doesn't cover these things up, it doesn't paper over them, but it also doesn't relish them. Right? Dead, uh, uh, Al's not great because he murders people. That's not in any way emphasized as like a, a you know his his winning character trait. It's 
It's everything else. And it's in spite of that, despite the fact that that is an undeniable, you know, uh, mark against him as a bad person, right? So, like, I think, yeah, I think it's just, it's the way, you know, Milch handles these characters is just very different than I think pretty much any show I've watched. I'm always fascinated by this period in HBO is particularly fertile. They have five TV shows in that era that are not all my favorites, but all of which you kind of have to grapple with as great television of that period, mm-hmm. um, which are uh, Deadwood and the Sopranos and the wire and six feet under and sex in the city. And like, you can plot them along an axis of like how they're talking about the birth to the death of America. And like, it, I, I have this, this dream that someday when I don't have to work all the time, uh, I'm going to start with Deadwood, proceed into Sex and the City, proceed into Six Feet Under, watch The Sopranos, and then watch The Wire. And it's like charting the American project and like how it had this great these great hopes, and then gradually just like like came not to fail, but came to a place where it it lost vision of those original ideals in a way that that really damaged it. And like HBO was talking about this stuff in these shows that were produced by different people, but had some of the same executives. It was talking about this stuff, you know, 10, 15 years Mm -hmm, before mm -hmm. the, the uh, election of 2016 made us realize, Oh wait, a lot of shit's fallen apart Mm -hmm. in this country. (laughs) What are, what, what about that? Although I do, I should say, it's pretty clear to me that season three of Deadwood is a direct reaction to uh, the second term of George W. Bush, like in so many ways, like like little and, and big. That's really interesting. That's, do, you, do you want to elaborate yeah, just we briefly on that? Because we, we hadn't thought of it we all. didn't talk about that. <laughs> so. I wrote a piece about it. It's one of my one of my Deadwood recaps. But in essence, like this is a, like season uh, season three, and especially the finale is about what losses you're prepared to take after you've lost the big one, after you've realized that like Hearst is always coming. Hearst is always going to succeed. History is on Hearst's side. It's Mm. not on your side. Like it was written as near as I can tell, it was written in like the summer ish of 2005. So this is a period when George W. Bush has been reelected and yet public sentiment is rapidly crumbling, especially around the time of Katrina. So like, it's really a season about like how you deal with this un- the unchecked capitalism and the unchecked um, avarice of what it, of a world where the only thing that matters is money and the only thing that matters is gold and and like there's so much in that season that I remember because I watched it live I remember that was the one season I watched live I caught up with the others on DVD and like I remember watching it live and being like okay. Yeah, it really vibed with that moment in time, and that moment in time was all about like realizing you had another two years of George W. Bush and being like, what What are we gonna do? And like, um, that feels so distant from us now, uh, in a weird way. But like, like I really do feel like season three is a response to that. And David Milch has he's not a political writer, but he's really good at distilling the political essence of a time. Mm. Like if you ever go back and watch NYPD blue, that is a show that has a very Clintonian feel to it in terms of like trying to patch over these giant systemic problems with half measures. And like, you know, the, the, the best weapon for that is a, a really unformed, unsuited kind of terrible white guy who nevertheless is like, has this like deep soul that like makes him, him, him fit for that time. Like there is, there is a very George W. Bush 
era quality to Deadwood in the way that it's also um, a post-September 11th show, as literally every show that debuted between <laughs> 2003 and 2007 is. Yeah, I think that's, I, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's something I hadn't really thought about, but I, it, it, it almost fits our time in a new sort of, you know, oh, yeah. roundabout sort of way. So, yeah, there you Hearst go. Is, Hearst is so much like, he's so much more of a Trump figure in this movie. In a, in a way that, like, he never was ex- directly a George W. Bush figure. The idea that, like, he represents the uh, unchecked uh, uh, horrors of technology, like, you know, it, it like, that is that is a thing that it just kind of gets pinned to him that I don't know really fits the character as well as it might. But, like, I, I totally buy it because the show needs that kind of figure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I like that's, the figuration. That's funny that you, of, that you uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It's funny that you pin him as a Trump figure because I hadn't even considered that the whole conceit of Hearst in this movie is that he was the very rich capitalist who became a politician. That had not even crossed by... It's it's so obvious now. And it's also interesting because there's this moment when he talks to Al early on where he is for the first time in, in his history on the show completely upfront with someone. And he says, Al, like, you know... If you convince people to and convince Charlie to sell his land, I will not pursue Trixie anymore. And Al says to him, that is remarkably straightforward of you. Um, and I think that that speaks to what you're saying, Emily, about the way that Hearst has kind of transformed as a character for this film, that he is not, that he is much more Trumpian in the way that Donald Trump does not, uh, the way that he says the quiet part loud, that he doesn't <laughs> hide his intentions the way that uh, an older Republican and Democratic politicians uh, might have done, that he is very straightforward and upfront about what he thinks. And that's, that's Hearst in this movie. Yeah. And like, I think, I think that it is always too tempting to read Donald Trump into things where he's not directly there. That's but true. again, watching, having watched almost all of David Milch's work, I've, I've missed some of his, his shows that lasted one season before sort of the DVD era, but he really is good at capturing the way a moment in American history feels. And by that, I mean, when the show's being made feels politically and socially, but filtering it through so many layer layers that you never have that sense of like that. Some shows which are clumsier are like, we are talking about the moment in time. And that's what makes his shows timeless. Um, it also like though, gives them these weird echoes that like, you kind of have to be there to pull out. Like, there are all these things in Hill Street Blues that are clearly referring to like the world of the Reagan eighties that like, I'm never going to get cause I was like four and I just wouldn't have known them. So um, I think that's an interesting thing about his work that I really like. Yeah. It's, it's cool because I, I'm thinking about the ways that in which like, especially before kind of the ending of the movie, which is very much a refutation of this. Uh, it's a very, it's a follow on from the way that the show would depict Hearst getting away with it just every single time he could just do whatever he wanted and Seth could drag him to the jail and it didn't matter. He just got away with it. And the moment I'm thinking of in particular is when Seth is trying to get the assassin to point him out that, that he had been hired by Hearst. And as soon as he's about to Hearst's uh, gunman just shoots him in the head and he can just do that. And that's it. That's your case. It's gone. He just gets away with it. And I think that that speaks to, that does speak to this, kind of moment in american politics this feeling like like the people who i don't know i tend to think of as the bad guys 
they can just do whatever they want, and it doesn't feel like there's ever any consequences for it. I mean, he literally it. shoots uh, someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and gets away with it. Like, that it is, literally, that yeah, is he can do exactly what happens in the movie. <laughs> but what's interesting about that thought in the context of what happens at the end of the film is that when Seth, again, drags him by the ear to the jail one more time, uh, you kind of know in your heart that in the morning he'll get out and it's this is not forever but the movie lets you sit with that victory like it doesn't it doesn't overturn it and and if you you know we can i think maybe there are there's a conversation to be had about uh the scene where he's beaten in the street but i think even that is a victory in the sense that like that is the most consequence he will ever face but it's a consequence for the first time and that is like good <laughs> that is an unqualified good and i i think actually going back to what sort of connecting what you were saying earlier, Emily, about what people take out away from shows or movies. Um, you know, I don't know that this was the case, but one might imagine that David Milch may have felt like he liked the themes, he liked the thing, the way that the show ended in some ways, uh, and wasn't necessarily trying to change that. But maybe felt that it is it's important to outline the enormity uh, and the inevitability uh, of the power of somebody like Hearst, of capital, of, uh, of, of, of power, right? But that it is maybe more important to send a message of solidarity uh, that there is a way, like basically you're either com uh, communicating an idea um, or a message of futility or you're communicating a message of, I don't know if it's hope, but that there is there is a value in fighting back. That there is that the show does not take by its finale, such as it is, but that the film then gives us. And you can call it sort of you know fantastical. Is that a is that a realistic depiction of how those things would or did or would go down? Um, specifically, maybe not. I, I you know that's sort of up for for opinion and debate, but. Uh, except for the historical aspect, obviously. But in terms of what it's telling us, um, which isn't necessarily something that David Milch engages with, like, he's not moralizing at us, for sure. But he does have very clear opinions about, like, labor, for example, and who's right and wrong in the Hearst versus his workers kind of situation. And there is a theme of union organizing and collective action. That is a theme throughout the show. And while it doesn't succeed, it is not, it is seen as, like, the noble pursuit. And here, this is not a union. This is a mob in the street. But, you know, there are people in the streets now, you know, and I think that there's a reason that there's people. There's people in the streets in the UK right now where I am actively as we speak, you know, yelling at Parliament. Like, that is what's happening right now and that that has its own merit. And that's a little bit of what you see here, I think, in some ways. And that's a very different message to end on than, you know, they're going to steamroll you even if you work yeah. together, which is just bleak it feels real but it's also like ugh, can we have some hope you know <laughs> <laughs> i really like that um there's this that the show allowed because i mean it's worth mentioning that the the people of deadwood not like the characters but uh, like the capital p people um the background people of deadwood are rarely a factor on the show you know they're kind of because it's an ensemble show we see so many aspects of the town already 
that there can be, you know, the town is not just these characters, but it kind of feels like it is sometimes, and it feels like it can be because the cast is so large. So I like that there's this moment of, like, you you remember that there are people in Deadwood, and they're not just, uh, you know, they, they have thoughts and opinions about things, and they feel certain ways about George Hurst. Like Garrett and they that, oh god i really wanted i'm really glad you brought that up because it's so funny how they i said this on twitter a minute ago uh, before we started recording they put him in this huge ridiculous beard but like the second he appears i was like oh it's he's back <laughs> i think they were trying to hide him but you, you can't hide him well me. no but then they give him a line right so he sort of yeah. you hear him and that's clearly his voice yeah, yeah. oh i love that i was so glad to that that, uh, that got a big laugh at the screening. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, Esther and I are going to go yell at something, incidentally, because uh, that's what it takes to, to change things. Uh, we're going to go beat some people up awesome. uh, here in the U.S. <laughs> where things are not going great. I will say this. I, I do think the show... Do it, do it on my behalf. Pretty... As an American, I'm, 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 I support it. <laughs> uh, I think the show makes a pretty good case that Hearst is inevitable. I think it also makes a pretty good case that Deadwood is inevitable, that like American history is the push and pull of these two forces of these, mm. these usually men, usually white men who like take the system and twist all the juice they can out of it, not caring what that does to people, but then the people rising up against them and, and building a better world in spite of them. And that like the history of American progress is that we keep getting a little bit better, even though things are always also getting a little bit worse. And like that, those two things exist alongside each other. And we were talking about George W. Bush a little bit ago. I remember when he was president, he was the first president of my adult life. And I was like, well, it's never going to get worse than this. Um, and in many ways he was still a worse president for my lifetime than, um, uh, who's the president now? Trump. <laughs> I literally forgot his name, which is the oh, what only a, what time. What a blissful moment that must have been. <laughs> the only time this ever happened. But yeah, so like, and like, like this show sort of sustained me then. And it was, it was weird to have it come back and be like, I don't want to say hopeful, but like, it definitely is aware that things don't always have to be bad and that things are often beautiful and good in spite of that. And that's why, Especially the section around um, Seth and Trixie's, not Seth, goddammit, Saul and Trixie's wedding is just one of my favorites ever. And I just, I, I weep like a baby every time I see it because it's just like, it's just human life as it's lived in a way that television rarely tries to show, rarely has time to show. The only reason it's being shown here is because, you know, Milch sort of extracted. Uh, Milch had the respect within the industry and within HBO to be able to do something like this. Like, it's pretty rare that you get a chance to just show people enjoying themselves, people dancing, people having a nice time, the regrets that Seth and Alma have at what never was. Like, uh, and sidebar, apparently Molly Parker flew in from where she was working on Lost in Space in Canada, just like on weekends to film a couple of shots here and there for the show. And like, that is that it's wild to me how much how willing the cast members were to like completely ruin their schedules and ruin their sleep schedules to like be in this movie. And the only one they couldn't ever quite figure out how to work in was Titus Welliver because as we all know, he is Bosch. So 
Detective Bosch. Ah, uh, ba- actually, Bosch is, by, I, Bosch is a good oh, is show. Is he a detective? We, I don't know. But ba- Yes, he is. Bosch is a good show that when you say the name of it and you say what it's about, people are like, oh, that's that's like that's like a gag on The Simpsons. But no, it's not. It's, it's the ultimate dad show in a great way. Yeah, so, it, I mean, you, you bring up the wedding, and, you know, it's something that I talked about in season two that I really love the juxtaposition of William's funeral, um, as, and which I found to be to be very moving but it's this very sad moment and then the next episode and it's it takes place in the day but everyone's wearing black and then you have this scene at night where um ellsworth and and uh and alma get married and everyone's wearing much brighter colors but it's 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 shot at night and so it's like this but it's just these two like over the course of two episodes with a lot more context of the season and stuff which we don't have here obviously of course saul and trixie have waited to get married till course of the film um, and are just having now having a baby and of course all these things are sort of lining up um, and and so there's a sort of decontextualization there but I agree with you completely and there is this you know I it's so funny you know maybe this says something about me versus you Emily but you you were saying you know what this beautiful moment uh, in the in the film and I was like oh obviously you're talking about the funeral you're obviously yeah. talking about the funeral and you talked about the wedding, yeah. but these are, I mean, these is yin and yang. These are parts of the same whole, right? You have, you know, the birth and uh, of this new baby and you have the wedding and all the rest. Of it, and you also at the same time, which by the way, is like a semi Jewish wedding, which, you know, entertained me. Um, oh. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then on the other side, you have this funeral, which just had, you know, was, it just destroyed me. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. And in that, that eulogy that, that, um, that, uh, that Seth gives. And then when Joni speaks up, um, to to talk about Charlie and her her relationship, which was this really lovely friendship over the course of the season, which uh, over the course of the series, which we of course don't see in the film almost at all, uh, or, or at all. I don't even know if they have any scenes together, um, or if they do, it's very brief. But like we just that's not really there. But it's this really lovely callback, and it's this yeah, it's just this this celebration of life, even in the course of this very sad moment. That it is great, and I actually think it's significant. Just going back to the solidarity union stuff, etc., that Charlie, uh, like Ellsworth, was one of those people who was so adamantly anti-Hurst, anti-Wolcott, etc., um, in the in the series itself. That he's the focal point for a lot of the change that and the, the um, Seth's sort of pivot, you know, in the course over the course of the film as well. Um, I'm so glad, uh, Emily, you brought up this wedding because it reminded me of what is. Me, I think, in, you know, now, now having seen everything, might be my favorite scene of all of Deadwood, which is Tom Nuttall's uh, bicycle ride. And it is so much mm. the spirit of that scene, which is just, uh, it seems like everyone in town just kind of stops uh, for a moment to watch Tom ride his bicycle. And everyone, and even Al, is, is smiling. And it's just this, like, very pure, simple, very yeah. simple moment of, like, of, of, of again, just, and it, you know, there is a there's a much darker bicycle ride that happens later that season but this initial one is like i think i think if you go back and listen to that episode i think i might have said this uh i thought something terrible was gonna happen i was like oh god everyone's so happy like sure this is this must be like they must be about to pull the rug out from under us and they do that exactly that with with william's death later in the season but it's not it's just this moment of life in the town disconnected from any of like the narratives that are going on just people existing and sharing this like moment of of small joy 
and it's a much larger joy this wedding but it's the same it's the same feeling i think and it's a very different i mean in that way i I love that scene too it's fantastic but it's very different than the wedding and funeral of the end of season two because both of those are bittersweet where you have william who's only in town because of seth and you know so seth has this like you know it's it's just partially my fault for having you come here it's such it's sort of this lukewarm difficult thing and then the wedding is this sort of wedding of convenience between Alma and Ellsworth. Like, neither are really pure. But the bike ride, 100%, as you said, is this just raw. Even Woolcut is, like, smiling yeah. watching what's happening. It's just a completely gorgeous moment in Deadwood, which never happens otherwise. And I would say this wedding maybe is the closest that they could. I mean, it does get broken up, obviously, um, briefly by uh, um, uh, Hearst, but more or less it's uh it's just this very pure moment uh especially uh with uh, the wonderful presence of con stapleton who is now a reverend or uh, a justice of peace or something what a wonderful character turn. <laughs> <laughs> that's something i never would have predicted for the, like no matter how many never in a million years through, it just never would have happened um so there's of course we didn't actually talk about the movie's plot at all and i don't we don't really have time to go through all of it, but I just want to briefly mention two quick things about it. Um, one is there's a motif of important female characters wearing blue dresses in this film at certain points, and I don't know what it means or if it actually has any purpose. Um, but like, there's a so there's a scene when uh, Alma gets off the train and she's wearing a blue dress. Um, there's uh, Caroline in the Gem and in the Thoroughfare where she's wearing a blue dress. Then there's Joni in the Stable and then there's Trixie at her wedding. And each time they're wearing a blue dress, it's like they're passing it around. It's a different dress. But it's like a uh, interesting motif in the film that I just wanted to throw out there in case anyone picks it up and has like a real thought about it. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to ask is what you thought about Jane and Joni's arc in the movie because it starts off really great and it ends really sweetly, but there's like no middle part. It just sort of transitions from the first bit to the second bit without like a conflict or resolution, which I found a bit strange. Like basically Jane goes to the stable and that was it. (laughs) You know what? Good. I'm happy. (laughs) I'll take it. They kind of build up like that. They've sort of switched positions where Joni's sort of fallen off the wagon and, and Jane's got a life a little bit more together, but then it doesn't, it just sort of resolved when she says, let's just go back to the way things were and then that's it. So I, don't, I don't know. I was, but that's my I, only I other happy. qualm with the film is that arc, which I love in the show and I love that they're together in the thing and I love Charlie's offering advice on how to court Jody is all beautiful and lovely. It's just that they sort of introduce this conflict that I feel like doesn't, maybe it was part of like the 30 minutes they ended up cutting out of the film or I don't know. Uh, well, I'm definitely curious to get to get your thoughts on this, Emily. But I, for me, it's I was perfectly happy to not uh, have them have to deal with any like this is just this is just the fangirl in me, I guess. Like I just want them to be happy, and I if if it's if it's a convenient happiness for the sake of the narrative, then I'll take it. Like I, I'm good. Just I, I'm just just as a point I'm just of interest, glad that that's like... how they ended up. That's how I felt when she was showing up. I was like, this is going to be great. They're going to have a reunion. But then they introduce a problem. It was, that was what I found weird about it. Is like, if they hadn't done that, I would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah fine. Yeah, yeah, it's a reunion. It's going to be great. Uh, but they sort of build this, this. And it's a really great sequence where 
Jane shows up, and it's not she's sort of crestfallen. It's not what she expected, and Joni's now running the Bell Union, but it's been kind of a, a anchor around her her neck. And and uh, there's this great shot where Jane leaves the room, and you don't even see all of Joni. It's just a piece of Joni. It's just her legs, oh, and it's it's it's, it's a great shot, and it communicates so much. But like, it's not you're introducing all these ideas, but I don't know. I feel like there, maybe there's like a scene or something that just didn't, didn't make it, but anyway, yeah, sorry. I didn't want to cut in. Em, Emily should. <laughs> yeah, please. I like it when ladies kiss. <laughs> See, that's um, what I'm saying. No, I like, I get, I get the complaints about it. Um, but I've seen so many stories where a dude and a woman are assumed to be in love. And then there's like no middle and they just kiss. And like, <laughs> To me, the mm-hmm. middle of this relationship is the run of three seasons of Deadwood. And, like, when they have their little falling out at the start of this movie, then I can just read in all of their history, and then they come back together and they kiss. And, like, yeah, it worked for me. I don't know. I, I thought it was a wonderful and sweet moment. And um, <laughs> I'm always happy to support my fellow lesbians. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm. I, here, here. They're probably my favorite, among my favorite characters on the show. And I've been hugely supportive of their relationship it's just that there's usually well because they have more time obviously but like there's usually more to the i just yeah i don't know i just ant- i anticipated exactly what you guys are describing a very simple reunion um and uh yeah so anyway that's sort of where i <laughs> where i came on that but um but otherwise i mean i just it was just an incredibly sad and and wonderful uh uh film that offered some closure that perhaps uh, I can see how people felt, um, and I felt. I mean, I saw the show not quite when it aired, but uh, a few years ago, and it was really helpful to to have the film to sort of give a little bit of a like a, a denouement. I would say the closest analogy I have this, to this is probably like Serenity as a follow, which was funny enough another Western sort of, um, which was like this glossy follow up to like this sort of gritty <laughs> Western show, which nearly as gritty as Deadwood, but just a very different feel between the, the show and the and the movie, but they do feel like they're in continuity in some ways. There is this time jump, there's the rest of it. Um, but that also gave at least a little bit of conclusion to what felt like a very abrupt ending, uh, perhaps more abrupt than, uh, than Deadwood. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I would chalk this up as a win, personally. I would love to talk, just get into the ending, because yeah, yeah. I think the last... 10 minutes of this movie are just it's just one outstanding scene after another it's it's just i would i I would rewatch the last 10 minutes of this movie even before i would rewatch the whole thing probably (laughs) just because it's it's incredible and and specifically uh something i said uh when i watched it a week or two ago initially because like i said i was going to do last week i did watch it pretty much immediately after we recorded the last episode because i could not wait um but the way that Seth and Al both end is really cool to me because Seth's ending is very traditional Western. It's very John Ford. He is the cowboy. He goes home to his lady love. He says, I'm home now. Yeah. And he kisses her. And it's very, it's, rom- it's you know, it's romantic, obviously, in the terms of these this relationship. But it is also romantic in that grander sense mm-hmm. of the word. It is this very sweeping gesture of 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 love and of of uh of triumph in this moment and and it's a key moment Even if of, that... of of putting to bed whatever 
Martha was worried about with, because there's these moments where she sort of sees him interacting with Alma and him in the center of town letting the, the beatings go on and, you know, is he slipping back into his old ways or is he really going to buy into this new life that we've built together? And by saying I'm home now and, and you know, it's also this important narrative closure to his arc that like, you know, I've I've seen it. I, I I'm not we are this is where I am now. I'm 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 present and this is the life of I'm I've picked. So I think that that's you know, yeah. it's it's a fantastic scene. It's yeah, it's beautiful. And it's like that's exactly where you want Seth Bullock to end, right? You want him to have this moment of what like this is a moment of closure. He this is this is an ending for him. Um and then immediately afterwards is the final scene with Al, which is not, you know, I, I don't want to kind of dis- disparage. John Ford was one of the best directors of all time. And he did not just make traditional Westerns. He made what we think of as revisionist Westerns, too. Um, but this is a moment which is very much about kind of resisting that romanticism. You know, Al's final line just, mm, it's so good. I was like, my my jaw was on the floor when he says that and and the final shot and it cuts to credits, I could not, I could not believe how good it was, but it is very resistant of that kind of romanticism uh, that Seth's conclusion is all about. But at the same time, it is very sentimental. Um, th- th- it is sentimental about who Al was. It, it is, it is a tribute to this character, even if it, even if that tribute is kind of wrapped up in, how uh, cynical Al could be and how uh, defiant he could be. You know, it's, it's, oh man, it just, just the juxtaposition of those two scenes, it, it is so brilliant in how it kind of positions these two characters who are so often kind of the yin and the yang of the series. Uh, and it turns them into not just thematic kind of opposites in, in what, in a final comment on the show, but also like, a final comment on the entire genre. It, it's, it's just, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, I think we have, we have to read into the, the way that Al's story ends David Milch's own self-awareness yes. of his, uh, Alzheimer's diagnosis, which was present during both his writing and the production of this film. Um, and there is a real attempt to grapple with the inevitability of death. That's, you know, coming for all of us, and David Milch, as you can understand, in his position, is thinking about that even more. Um, I, I met him at this year's TCA Awards. I presented uh, the Deadwood, our, our Heritage Award, which is, in essence, our Hall of Fame. We're saying this is one of the great TV shows of all time, and it can stand alongside any of them. Um, and he was very frail. Um, and it was sad, but uh, I, I, you know, it was it was a real treasure to me to be able to to meet him and to to shake his hand and say hello and it was uh it was very moving to get that experience um after watching this movie the first time i remarked that it was the greatest tv episode of 1997 and i meant that as a compliment (laughs) um and by that i mean like a thing like the waltzing matilda sequence is so corny but so TV, it's the kind of thing that works on TV because you've spent so long with these characters. I'm like, there are movies that accomplish it. I think a lot of Altman accomplishes that kind of that kind of forthright corniness that cuts through cynicism to be like ultimately really sincere. But 
it's tough. It's tough. It's much easier to do it in TV and like the Waltzing Matilda thing. Um, just some of these moments in this, the last 30 minutes that are just like, yeah, this is like a really nice finale of a TV show from 1997. And it made me realize how much I miss that kind of TV in an era when, oh, so much TV is trying to be uh, so many things other than this. And yet this is like, this is what TV does really well. Clean, elegant storytelling that situates you in a world and among a group of characters and lets you follow their lives over time. Like, Time is the great advantage of television as a medium, and too few shows take advantage of it now. And, like, it's to the detriment of what's happening to television right now. Because I love television. I, I, I have always loved it. I, I, it is my medium of choice. But right now it is, it is becoming a thing I don't really recognize. And I have to sort of grapple with whether I'm going to make myself okay with that or if I'm going to keep continue railing about how we need like more hospital dramas or something well, partially due to how it's being distributed and things like that right that's a big part of it but yeah mm-hmm. but but I love that you brought up this Waltz uh this Walter Matilda scene because it's incredible and also there's a great a link to all, all of these articles I've mentioned but there's a great article by Matt Solar Sites doing this this sundown on on Deadwood uh, article which which was passed around quite a bit uh, prior to the release of the film which is a really sad and, and lovely piece that talks about um, memory and memory of the show and uh, obviously uh, David Milch's memory and how that all plays into things. But there's a little a little section that's a little anecdote of how that scene was shot and how uh, Jerry Jewell was having a really hard time remembering that song and uh, Ian McShane sort of you know patiently walked her through it because like, she had all the dialogue and everything like that, but she was like, the song's really fucking complicated um and she and and he was just really like like there was just this incredible support back and forth of of him helping her and just by the time they were done they just all felt like something really you know amazing had been had been shot once they were able to sort of get the get the get the take and so it's so great to see that and then see the, like the finished product in the film which you would, you would never know that there was uh, except for you see this this beautiful connection between these two characters where al finally relents um because he does have this affection for this character um that's been uh, was mostly focused on in season one but has been definitely a pervasive theme in the show um and his his it, it it's 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 important to focus on that because it is the connection to his much more human side than obviously his his uh, other less glamorous elements what i love so much you know emily you talk about al's uh final scene being this kind of reflection of milch's own uh feelings about his not just his mortality but his you know when you ha- when you're diagnosed with alzheimer's that's that's it becomes immediate we're like we all know we're gonna die but he knows like it's it's coming like it's it's here for him it's imminent, yeah. um and what i love so much about the final shot of this movie is that al has this great line to go out on but when it goes down camera tilts down to his hand and it you, the last thing you see is his hand like twitches so it's not like we see him expire yeah it's not the classic shot the last thing falling, we see yeah. is like he the last thing we see is like you know the show's over, the movie's over, but for one more moment, he's still hanging in there. And I'm like, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Oh my God. It's so, it's so touching. And it is like, you know, it is the kind of reflection on mortality that can only come from someone who is, you know, not long for this world, but is for the moment still alive. I don't know that Milch 
could have depicted Al dying on screen. You know, if 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 this is if we're reading Al's character in this film correctly, like I, I, that's what I think is so beautiful about that moment. It's it's him saying like, you know, for the moment, we don't know what's going to happen after we cut to the credits. But for that moment, he's still here. And oh, my God, the closest, I'm getting the closest, very emotional. Uh, the closest analogy I can even come to that. Um, would be a very completely different medium, obviously, but um, Roger Ebert's last uh, blog, where he also knew that he was pretty much on his way out, and it's just absolutely soul-destroying to read it. Um, and as somebody who felt ex- extraordinarily connected to him, I was it was a, uh, just incredible to read that and, and have to deal with that. And it's this... There's truly a, a different kind of clarity with somebody knows where they're heading, um, especially if it comes with a sudden diagnosis, but even just knowing that su- something hasn't worked, like a treatment hasn't worked or something, and that things are going to go a very different and, and much more mortal direction. It's just it's just horrible to, to, to read and to, or to hear or to watch or to listen. And, um, but it's also it's so unique. It's such a unique perspective to have. And, you know, people have been banging on about having, like, you know, we want a Deadwood movie, but we want season four or whatever for so long. And only in 2019 could this particular version of this, this conclusion of this story been written and made. Um, so, you know, if this had been made in 20, 2007, for example, we would have gotten a completely different, you know, <laughs> uh, story. And it's just, it's an inversion of these characters. So it's, uh, it's fascinating to see it. And to see also just, by the way, it's something, it doesn't so much affect the women in the show who all somehow look almost exactly the same for the most part. It's actually kind of remarkable. But just that I actually got emotional just as the show opened. And just seeing these characters we watched, you, we, you and I, Esther, were just watching this <laughs> like last yeah. week. And they're just so old. And it's, it was like Some of them are watch. unrecognizable. Yeah, it was tough. Dan Doherty is unrecognizable. <laughs> if, if the first shot of him wasn't at the bar across from Johnny, I, I could not have told you who that was. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. And he, he, you know, apparently he has a scene that's like a big scene as well that they ended up cutting, um, which he he was like, I, I totally get where they cut it. It was superfluous, but like it's the big scene where he's apparently what he what happens in the scene. He, there's a thread about it. I'll, I'll link to but um, on, on Twitter. And of course, he was he wrote one of the episodes of Deadwood. So I think he's he's also invested in the show as, as a show. Um, but in talking about this 30 extra minutes, he says there's a scene, for example, where he um, is trying to protect is trying to prevent Trixie from going up to see Al because again connecting to the same theme Al's so sick and he just and 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 Dan's trying to put on like bravado to be like no I'm the boss and I'm saying you can't go up there because but he's just trying to protect Trixie from seeing how frail Al has gotten and also Dan is dealing with that as well because as we know he's extraordinarily emotionally connected to Al so you know it's this horrible like moments of uh but like really important and beautiful character uh sequence that happens um that maybe maybe someday we'll see because it was shot it just it didn't make it into the final cut of the film as we saw it um so yeah it's definitely a running theme in the, in the show and and uh and and just seeing people physically age which isn't something the the movie did but just exists is it, it was it was it's tough to see it's tough to see um but they were all they all still got it let me tell you, they, it was like they roll one, the end of season three rolls right into the movie and you, you would never know. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, we should actually, yeah, I do want to, you know, I know we're kind of wrapping up, but the degree to which 
every single actor in this cast just picked it right back up again. Like in this, this is, I think is especially clear to us because like you say, we were watching the show from 15 years ago last week, but yeah, they could have shot this the day after that aired, except for the, you know, you know, most of its makeup, but obviously (laughs) they've aged as well. But yeah, every single, it's incredible. There's no hiccup. They all just, they're right back in character. It's, it's astonishing. And let's not forget, of course, they brought back a lot of the crew as well, right? There's costume designers and set designers. The folks who were involved with the original show came back for this to, to use, in fact, some of the same items. They couldn't find a good top hat for Joni. And uh, um, Kim Dickens actually had her top hat from the show. And she brought it in <laughs> and they just recolored it and used it in the show, like in the, in the movie. And like, that was sort of, you know, there's, there's all these, these carryovers and things. And apparently the set didn't change all that much. So there was just a bit of tweaking there. Um, so it just makes it feel like it fits, but they of course updated to make it feel like, you know, years had passed. So they evened out the roads and they added some signs and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just absolutely incredible. But, um, hell of a film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah, Emily. If there's anything else you, if you have any, any final final thoughts? final thoughts about the movie? Well, I really feel like we need to talk about its connection to the works of Mark Twain. Um, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, I went. I did go and find the. Uh, I did go and find the piece where I wrote about the uh, resonance with the 2004 election. That is my review of the series finale. Tell in something pretty, which is on the AV Club. So you Perfect. Can go and take a look at that. Look. There's a couple paragraphs about the, the historical context of that. Um, no, I don't really have final thoughts. I'm glad that this movie exists. I'm glad that we got uh, this this gift of a thing and uh, this TV show as a whole. And um, I hope people continue to discover it for years to come. Um, I there are people who are like, oh, I'd love to see another movie. I'd love to see more. I don't. I don't need any more. This is a yeah. This is a fantastic ending to this this show and this story, uh, and I can't wait for you guys to cover uh, uh, John from Cincinnati next. I'm so uh, you were like the third or fourth person who said that to us, and it's like it's yeah, way beyond a joke. <laughs> I I I would I mean John from Cincinnati, not a good show, an underappreciated show, just for the <laughs> sheer level of what it's trying to do. Um, yeah. I, mean, I wish David Milch was on Twitter. I wish David Milch was on Twitter, like so he could just give us John from Cincinnati stuff. He never got to use. That's <laughs> incredible. I mean, I you know, yeah. Where is the John from Cincinnati coffee table book? You could make it a surfboard, and then it just sort of folds out, you know. But it's like it's in the yeah. shape of. I mean, it's perfect. It's perfect. Uh, more more seriously though, um, I do think <laughs> that uh, his final TV series, Luck, um, has gotten a bit of a bad reputation because. It, several horses were killed on the set of it. You hate to see that. But it's a really terrific show. I really loved that show. Everyone Um, loved it. Like, the critics loved it. It was really a question of circumstance that it got canceled. Yeah, it's really a question of if you can't make a TV show without killing several horses, then probably the TV show shouldn't exist. But Mm. still one of my favorite cancellation stories. And one of my favorite things about it is there is a second season premiere that was filmed. I don't know if it was ever edited, but it was filmed. It's just sitting somewhere in HBO's vault. Fascinating. Like, there's all this milch marginalia that I hope as his career is more celebrated, sort of makes its way to light. Um, I sort of did. Did Michael Mann direct that episode? 
the Michael Mann directed. Because I know he directed the pilot, right? I don't think he directed the season two premiere. I think that that was probably. I don't know precisely who their uh, who their their uh, stock director on that show was because I'm guessing it wasn't Michael Mann. But uh, <laughs> there was a, there was like a hidden hour of Michael Mann directed uh, TV out there that was just locked away. I just got very excited for a second. Like, <laughs> well, I, just, just as a point to, um, not that you're making a direct comparison, but just as a point quickly about David Milch, which is something that I, in reading about different actors and talking about how, first of all, they were like, obviously we dropped everything to come do Deadwood. It was the greatest thing I ever did. And these are people who either, <laughs> some of them worked on some of the biggest, some of their longest running roles on other shows, sometimes some David Milch projects even, and they just universally were like, this is the greatest thing I ever worked on. Of course I came back. It's the greatest project. And to be able to, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be able to do it twice was just remarkable, etc. Um, but I think it was Brad Dourif who said, um, you know, I had worked with David Lynch and just he just rattles off all these directors. He's like, I've worked with all of these people. And, and Esther, I know you, you love David Lynch. Emily, I don't know. I, you, mm-hmm. I do. I love David Lynch. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And Brad Dourif was like, but... David Milch is like the genius. I like he was he was the person, and I had to like he's everything I ever wanted. And the way they would talk, and they would all say they were like, "You just like Kim Dickens didn't want to be in." She was like, "I don't know if I want to do TV." Um, and they were like, "Look, he thinks you're good for the the part. Why don't you just go and talk to him?" She talked to him for forty five minutes. Was like, "Whatever he wants, he's a genius. I just have to work with this guy." <laughs> like they just grab and and it held for you know over a decade later they're still like yeah obviously i'm gonna go with david calls i'm gonna go and be involved in this thing so it's just the level of of affinity that people have and the fact that you know he would you know they talk about how he would he would sort of bring out their vulnerabilities and stuff and as you know some of the stuff that you sort of hear about directors and things like that although he wasn't directing um but that also he just was so supportive and just the environment he created he really just created something that i think men and women and people of all different backgrounds just seem to really gravitate towards him. And I think that's a really unique thing and something we're celebrating as, you know, as his, as his career sort of comes to, comes to a close. Um, I, for my money, David Milch is the great, greatest writer of television ever. And one of the things that's interesting about him is he's somebody who does a lot of the stuff we associate with artists who make it hard to work. Um, he could be very particular. He could be very mm-hmm, demanding. Mm-hmm. He would sometimes rewrite stuff like an hour before it was supposed to film. But everybody who's worked with him seems to have this. Like they would be, they could be frustrated with like, okay, I didn't get my pages. Like you'll hear those stories, but they all seem to really appreciate the way that he like zeroed in on this, like this sense of self, this sense of 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 the human animal in a way that like. Uh, made their work better and made the show better and that he did it from the accounts I've heard without being a dick. Like that was kind of the thing that separated him from Mm -hmm. like many of the other TV writers throughout TV history who've delivered late and like people just got so frustrated with, with that work environment. People didn't get frustrated with the David Milch work environment because a, the quality of the material they were being handed was so great that they didn't question, but B, he seems as if he was a fairly kind presence, despite all of his demons in terms of addictions and gambling and things like that. He seems as if he was a fairly kind presence and like, you know, what a, what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful thing to, to hear about. Like at the TCA awards, when, uh, 
the some of his coworkers on Deadwood were presenting a speech about him. Paula Malcolmson, uh, Trixie herself, started like weeping, and she had to reach down and grab her dress and wipe her eyes with her dress because she was like so overcome. And um, he really touched the people he worked with um, in a way that, uh, you know, I I hope that I touch the people I work with. Yeah, when... <laughs> well, that's that's just it. And you know, there was these. Um, by the way, Paula Malcolmson, just an unbelievable actor that should be in everything and isn't and that just blows my mind uh so just as an aside um but i completely agree with you and 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 from everything i've read and you you have much more intimate knowledge of this than i do but just from what i've read it seems like you know he would just enter scenes and like not necessarily he was very particular but also would just be like you know this is the content the subtext and the context of what's going on and 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 what these characters are feeling and it really had very specific ideas of how every scene played out and was like meant to play out, but without being a director in that sense, but really gave people a sense of what their character was. And there's this, um, this great anecdote and I'll link to this, uh, this article, but this anecdote from Kim Dickens about when she joined the, she had, she saw the pilot before she joined the show because, um, Joni doesn't join and uh, doesn't start until I think episode three. So she had already seen the pilot and was like really excited to jump into it. Um, but she was talking about how later on there's a scene where she has she has a gun to her head. If you remember, I think maybe that's in season three, and she didn't know like how am I supposed to play this? And he went for a walk with her, and they just walked around for a while, and he told her a whole story from his like life, just a personal anecdote. And there was something he said there where she said, I think it, that line is really good for me to say or to work with or something along those lines. And he just took out a notepad, wrote it down, gave it to her and said, that's perfect. Let's let's use that. Like just willing to take the time to help an actor work through something like that is something that, you know, it's very different, which is still a time consuming thing. And it affects everyone else in, in certain ways. And I'm sure it can be frustrating in some contexts. But it's very different than telling someone to do the take a thousand times until you get the thing you're looking for or whatever. Like, these are very different exercises. Um, one is, I think, a much, you know, from my money anyway, much more empathetic and human way of approaching things. And I just, I really appreciated reading reading about that. So, um, okay. yeah, is that, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's a wrap on Hoopleheads. That's a wrap on Hoopleheads. Uh, amazingly. Um, wow. So, yeah, Emily, do you want to, what, what, what are all the things you want to plug? Uh, yeah, you can you can read my writing at Vox.com. You can catch up with me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash TDOTI. My feed is mostly shit posting and talking about my transition in way overly sincere terms. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. you can Relatable. check out my book, Monsters of the Week, The Complete Critical Companion to the X-Files, which is out in paperback as we're recording this today, uh, September Amazing. 3rd. So you awesome. should be able to find that. should be able to find that in your local stores. Um, and uh, you can also check out I have two podcasts with Vox I think you're interesting in interview series and primetime a series about the history of television and finally I have uh, an audio fiction podcast uh, called Arden it is a fictional true crime show it's also a comedy it's also about ladies in love because that's what I do and uh, (laughs) you can find all of these wherever fine podcasts are sold I'm sure I'd think of other stuff to pitch if I kept talking, but it was a pleasure to discuss my favorite show of all time with you folks. Thank you so much for, for coming on. This has been incredible. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. And um, on a similar note, just briefly for on our end, uh, for folks who want to subscribe and, and uh, continue listening to, to the show, um, we haven't firmed up exactly what's happening next with uh, our podcast series, but we have plans. They are in the works. It's not like there isn't a 
there's a couple of options basically, and we are working on it as we speak. Um, but I don't want to get ahead of anything, so uh, we'll probably take a little bit of a break, um, and but not a year. So don't worry about that. Um, I know some <laughs> some folks weren't too happy when we just disappeared for a year. Um, so we will be back uh, to talk about a show other than Deadwood and other than Game of Thrones, which is truly mind-boggling. Um, and uh, that'll be very exciting. But in the meantime, uh, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, uh, anything of that sort, or on the website. Uh, and as soon as we're back in action, you will be updated. So... Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. It was such a fun discussion, and uh, it's so great to have someone with such intimate knowledge of the show and and such a love of the show to, to, to discuss with us. So thank you. I loved being here. Thank you. 